Okay. We're going to be in Psalm 98 this morning. You want to turn there in your Bibles? Psalm 98. When I was little, uh, my favorite chorus was this little light of mine. It wasn't because I was moved by the great theology of the song. It was because I got to shout no after we sang Hide It Under a Bushel. I, that was my favorite part. Uh, and as, then as a teenager, I always enjoyed singing Pass It On. Some of you might remember that song. Uh, and again, shouting was involved, at least in the way we did it. Uh, this time it was during the chorus when we sang, I'll shout it from the mountaintop. And then all the youth in the church would shout, Praise God! Like as loud as we could. Um, and so that was great because I grew up in, you know, in a Baptist church and there just weren't many opportunities to shout about much. Um, you had to take advantage when they presented themselves. So as I've gotten older, there have been numerous hymns and songs and choruses that have moved me. Uh, like most anyone, I've always liked Amazing Grace. Uh, I even used to sing it over my children uh, when they were little and I was rocking them to sleep. I was, that was one of the ones, because I knew all the verses. So that was easy. I'd sing all the verses to Amazing Grace. Um, I also enjoyed more contemporary songs like uh, More Precious Than Silver. Some of you might know that one. Lord, you are more precious than silver. That one. Uh, or You Are My All in All, uh, just choruses that kind of made their way into the church over time. Uh, even now, there are songs that are relatively recent that lead me to worship, like uh, Chris Tomlin. We sang part of some of his songs just a few minutes ago, but the one that sticks out for me is a song called Good, Good Father. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Really good song. Uh, some of you might think it's a little repetitive, and I understand that. Uh, but like a few years ago when we took the students to Rock the Desert in Midland, which is that big sort of Christian concert they used to have, I don't think they do it anymore, but they used to. Uh, and so they'd have all these different Christian artists and, you know, rock and rap and contemporary and worship and all the things mixed together. And so we took them and Chris Tomlin was actually there and sang that song. And I remember experiencing just the presence of God in those moments as we sang <coughs> like this huge desert full of people singing that song together. It was really cool. Um, as I was studying this week, I learned quite a bit about the history of church worship. And I've taken some courses in seminary. So I'd heard a lot of it before, but it's been a while since I've looked at that. Um, but church worship and the history and then Baptist hymnals specifically. Uh, I think what surprised me most is that our hymn books have changed over the years. As Baptists, we don't like to change too much, right? Uh, but we had one version in 1956, and it's the one a lot of people still swear by. Um, there was another sort of updated version in 1975, a third one in 1991, and a fourth one in 2008. I was telling Armin before the service, we'll probably do for another one pretty soon here. Uh, but there were others before these, other different hymnals and, and Baptist hymnals even, but um, these were all printed by Lifeway, which is the sort of the media arm of the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, and I know we're not affiliated with the SBC, but we still use their hymn books, uh, mainly because next to the Bible itself, they are the most pervasive book found in any sort of Baptist church. Uh, and while many of the hymns contain 
bits and pieces of scripture and they're inspired by scripture. Some people treat the hymn books as if they are sort of an extension of the Bible, uh, something holy that cannot be changed. Because, like I said, we don't like to change things, right? We prefer to hold on to the way we have always done things. And yet, the Baptist hymnal has been updated several times to include newer songs and choruses. Of course, the process of revising the hymnal has been long and arduous each time, taking years as various committees review and discuss various hymns concerning their theology and popularity and singability. I don't even know what that word means, but that was part of what I was reading, singability. Uh, and of course, you know, if it's Baptist, there has to be committees involved, so that's one of those things. But when it came to, uh, just for instance, when it came to the 1991 update from 75 to 91, they ended up containing, uh, putting in 650 hymns in, in total. Only 200 of those hymns had been in previous versions, which means they had 450 new things in the 1991 version. Now, that's a fairly dramatic change, especially for Baptists, right? Uh, one thing I've learned in my many years of ministry in the Baptist church, however, is that as stubborn as we can be about singing new songs, it's okay so long as they're in the hymn book. Like, that's the thing. That's to be in the hymn book. Amen. Yeah, <laughs> So, uh, this morning we're going to look at a song that was brand new at some point. A song that was added to Israel's hymnal along the way. It wasn't there at the beginning. It's a song that made it past all the committees and became a useful tool in the praise of a people. So follow along with me if you will. We're going to read in Psalm 98. Uh, it's nine verses. We'll read them all if you will follow me. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands and let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. May God bless the reading of his word. Okay, so the first line here in this psalm, it calls for the people to sing a new song. And there are two things we need to consider here. First, there was, at some point, for some reason, a need for new songs. We don't know who wrote this song, but we do know that it wasn't David. He liked to sign his name on everything. And so it could be that it was written in an entirely different generation than some of the other songs. Most likely it was. Uh, it could have been maybe a hundred years after David wrote his songs. Someone else got inspired to write a song of praise to the Lord for the people to sing when worshiping. 
And the other thing is that nothing written in this song is new. All of it can be found in some form or other all through the songs. It had all been said before in some way by someone else, which is sort of ironic if you think about it. There was a need for a new song with the same basic theological concepts that had been in numerous other older songs. Sounds sort of like what happened with the Baptist hymnal, right? And probably all the others. As if maybe Israel went through different stages in their musical development and adapted different styles as they progressed. Maybe they incorporated different instruments or rhythms. Maybe they used more harmony. We really don't know exactly what changes happened. We just know that it was a good and holy thing to write and incorporate new songs into their worship. Looking at the way the church has handled this sort of thing in our time, one might easily come to the conclusion that it's like getting dental work done. It's been painful and has exacted a high cost, right? There was even a time not terribly long ago when the whole discussion about how we should do worship became a point of contention for many churches and even denominations. And it got so bad for a while that it earned a nickname. They call it the worship wars. Anybody ever heard that term, the worship wars? Seriously, I, I don't know who first used that terminology, but I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that those two words do not belong together. They just don't. In my studies this week, I came across a, uh, an editorial from a newspaper where the author objected to the new trends he was seeing in the church. And here's what he wrote. There are several reasons for opposing it. One, it's too new. <laughs> Two, it's often worldly, even blasphemous. The new Christian music is not as pleasant as the more established style. Because there are so many songs, you can't learn them all. It puts too much emphasis on instrumental music rather than godly lyrics. This new music creates disturbances, making people act indecently and disorderly. The preceding generation got along fine without it. It's a money-making scene, and some of these new music upstarts are rude and loose. Those are some harsh accusations, right? They were written by a pastor attacking the work of Isaac Watts. It's <laughs> the man who wrote hymns such as When I Surveyed the Wondrous Cross, O God, Our Hope in Ages Past, that we just sang. Um, I don't know. In other words, none of this is new, right? None of it's new. While the most recent controversy over worship styles uh, was unfolding, some churches sort of just ignored the whole thing and kept right on playing the traditional hymns and uh, using the hymns, uh, even if some of those were also changing. It, it was at a much slower pace. I mean, you look at the time between the hymnal changes, and it's a long period of time. Uh, other churches tried to solve the issue by mixing traditional and contemporary styles together to please as many people as possible. They would have hymns right alongside the newer music, the you know, worship songs and stuff, often incorporated electric guitars and drums and stuff like that. And this generally alienated at least half of the people in the church who didn't care for whatever the other style was, uh, especially if the worship leaders sort of leaned more heavily on one than the other. 
Still, other churches shifted over entirely to new music styles, leaving traditional songs behind or reworking them in ways that changed them dramatically. And this often led many congregants feeling uh, disengaged. They didn't feel like they were connected to it. And some churches just end up splitting and having more than one service. We're going to have a traditional service with hymns, a contemporary service with the electric guitars and drums and all the things. They just broke it up. Few churches, however, came out ahead in this whole thing. Uh, for the most part, what ended up happening was a massive shakeup of folks rearranged themselves along lines drawn by the churches with differing worship styles. And I know folks who left churches that were experimenting with some of the new styles and joined other churches that were more traditional because that's what they liked. I also know some who left churches that chose to stay traditional and joined other churches that were embracing the newer styles because that's what they liked. I always felt torn, personally, because I'm convinced that when we come to worship the Lord, it shouldn't really be a matter of style, but of substance. If one church does liturgy and another does hymns from the 1700s and another has electric guitars and drums on their stage, as long as they are functionally worshiping the Lord, I should be able to join them in doing so. I say this because worshiping God has been around since the beginning of time, but it's looked very different over the years. If we go back to the oldest song we have in our hymn book, it's actually not Isaac Watts. Uh, it, it was, even that song was still brand new at some point. None of our songs are the songs the children of Israel sang. None of them are the songs Jesus and the disciples sang, or, or the early church after Pentecost, or, or even the first 1,500 years of the church, for that matter. The oldest song I've ever seen a Baptist church incorporate into their worship is Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, which Luther wrote and published in 1529. I, I, I guess a case could be made for Be Thou My Vision, since the words themselves were written about 500 years earlier than Luther's hymn, but it wasn't used as a hymn in English-speaking churches until 1919, so I kind of discount that and I put it aside. Luther's is probably the oldest. Uh, Eleanor Hull and Elizabeth Burns translated an Irish poem for Be Thou My Vision. This is just interesting sidebar here for a second. Uh, they set it to verses in the very first part of the 1900s, and then uh, a man named Leopold L. Dix put it with an Irish folk tune, uh, sort of like a bar song that they would sing, and they, that song happened, Be Thou My Vision. And I've always loved that song. I'll just be honest. That's a fantastic song. Uh, anyways, what am I driving at? What am I talking about? Why am I saying all this stuff, right? Here's the thing. The church has some fantastic songs. Some are very old, but in the greater span of time, it's all relative. All our songs were new once. And if the Lord waits long enough to return, these new songs that people are singing today or fussing about, whichever, uh, they'll one day be part of a traditional service because they will be older than anyone else in attendance. So whether it's Isaac Watts, or Chris Tomlin, or whoever writes a worship song that gets published next month, if the substance of our faith is at the heart of it, it shouldn't be a problem. Because even the psalms were new at some point. All of them. And this psalm teaches us that it's both good and holy to sing new songs 
to the Lord. Okay, so now that I've stepped on everyone's toes about worship styles, let's move on. Uh, just remember that I've never brought worship, uh, rap music in. Just, just saying, I love rap music, but I've never done it, so. Thank you. There you go. There you go. The reason this songwriter gave for writing this new song is actually a matter of who the Lord is and what he has done. According to verses 1 through 3, the Lord has done marvelous things. He had brought about salvation and made his righteousness known to the nations by being steadfast and faithful to Israel in front of all the ends of the earth. So when did that happen? Which time is the author referring to? Because he wasn't specific. And God has rescued and delivered Israel numerous times, right? That had happened over and over and over. I think the most obvious option is when the Lord freed the children of Israel from their slavery in Egypt. And not only would Egypt have experienced that sequence of events, and they were a major world power at the time, but every nation around them would have been aware of it as well, right? And stories would have followed Israel wherever they went as they wandered through the, the wilderness or came into the promised land. Uh, I mean, because whenever a few million people show up in an area, there has to be a reason, right? And in this case, the story of Yahweh rescuing and delivering his people from their slavery in Egypt would have been the story that was told. It's very likely the author of the Psalms had this in mind, at least to some extent. If not directly, then at least as a parallel for whatever other story that he or she might have been referring to, right? So the same sort of thing. Because this is a huge part of the story of how Israel became a nation. It's a foundational aspect of who they were as a people and who we are as a people. How Israel might come to understand God's deliverance from that time forward and how we might understand God's deliverance in our lives. Every time they chased after a false god and found themselves enslaved or oppressed as a result, Every time they cried out to the Lord for rescue from their situation, they would look back at the story of the Exodus and would trust in the Lord to deliver them again. And this is what is going on in this psalm as well. The songwriter was writing a new song about God's deliverance, about how awesome and amazing it was when the Lord showed up and rescued just like in the hymn we sang a few minutes ago, O oh God, our help in ages past. In the second verse we sang, Under the shadow of your throne your saints have dwelt secure. Sufficient is your arm alone, and our defense is sure. It's the same idea as the second half of verse 1 where he says, this, His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. This is one of the reasons a hymn such as this has lasted for over 300 years. Because the biblical principle that it's based on is solid. It's true. It's trustworthy. It shows us who the Lord is and how the Lord works. It allows us a strong precedent to rely on when we face similar troubles. We know we can call on the Lord that He will answer and deliver us. And this is what leads to what we read in the next few verses in 4 through 6. Now, these three verses are an expression of joy. 
Make a joyful noise. Break forth in joyous song. Make a joyful noise. It seems clear that the author of this psalm saw God's great acts of deliverance as a reason for joyful celebration. Packed into the middle of this call for joyful celebration is a call for the use of lyres and trumpets. And for those who may not know, lyres are like uh, those U-shaped handheld harps, right? And think about how very different those two instruments are, lyres and trumpets. They're on opposite sides of the spectrum when it comes to the kind of noise they produce. One is soft and gentle while the other is bold and loud, right? As is often the case, Hebrew language is packed full of meaning. In this case, we have two instruments which are meant to convey the type of worship we might offer the Lord when we are delivered. Lyres were typically used in small social settings where they could be heard, while trumpets were often used in large public settings where they could be call attention to things. The author called for both. This means the joyous celebration should be both for small gatherings and for large gatherings. But why would this matter? Well, the main idea is that whether gathering in homes as families or in larger spaces as a congregation, joy should be the reason that we come together. Joy should be at the heart of our celebration. Whatever the music style, worship style, the whole point is to joyfully celebrate Jesus as our Savior and King. Is that what we are doing every Sunday morning? Are you full of joy this morning? Did you come here to celebrate? To share your joy with others? So many church services come across like a damp rag, just devoid of energy or enthusiasm. It's like, yeah, we're here to celebrate, hooray. You know, like real half-hearted. Some of this is a result of our upbringing, I'll be honest. If we had been raised in Jewish families like the people who originally sang this song, we would have acted very differently. We would have clapped and stomped our feet and danced around. I can't dance, sorry. But we would have sung boisterously as if in defiance of those who would try to enslave or oppress us. We would have laughed and raised our arms up in praise of our deliverer. So many Christians have been raised to think that all that kind of stuff is for the crazy folks. We've been taught to be rigid and somber. We were raised to believe that reverence meant sour faces and unemotional responses to hymns and scripture. That we would sit still for about an hour, nod our heads in agreement, the pastor made a good point, and then file out the back door with firm handshakes and grim smiles as we head off to lunch, right? It's almost as if we don't really know what joy is. As if we don't have the first clue how to revel in the salvation of the Lord. And if we don't know what that's like, how will anyone else? When they look at us and they see what being a Christian is all about, if all they see is the strict, stern, sour-faced stuff, why would they want any part of that? Now hear me on this. I'm not saying we need to put on false smiles and fake being happy. That's not what I'm getting at. 
Some moments call for us to share in mourning and grief and sorrow together. But if there isn't a shared joy at the core of who we are as both individuals and a congregation, if people don't see in us a joy that transcends whatever circumstances we might be going through, if they don't see us joyfully pushing back in defiance against the onslaught of soul-draining darkness in this world, then why would they want anything to do with us or the one we claim as a Savior? To make the case even stronger, the author of the psalm continued by pointing out nature's consistent acts of praise. In verses 7 and 8, they wrote about the sea roaring and the rivers clapping and the hills singing for joy together. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about silence uh, and hearing the wind in the trees at that church up in Kansas, about how worshipful that moment was. This is a similar idea. One of the realities we find all through Scripture from beginning to end is that God's creation is in a constant state of worship, right? Think about the picture the songwriter was painting here then. Roaring seas is an easy one. Anyone who has been to an ocean and heard the waves sort of crashing has a pretty good idea of how noisy that is. Uh, yet it's praise to the Lord. As for the rivers clapping, I think maybe you think of it in terms of what the overall sound is like. When you're hiking out in the desert somewhere or, or somewhere else, uh, if you come across a river or stream, before you can actually see it, you can always hear it. This sort of sounds like applause, right? As if it's just full of joy at being what it is. Oh, that we could be so joyful. Then we come to the hills singing together for joy, as if the wind is hugging them and creating a sound which rises in praise to the Lord. Like most other poetry, these are all ultimately metaphors standing in for the celebratory nature of nature itself. As each created thing exalts the Lord just by being what it is, can we say the same of us? Are we in a constant state of worship and praise just by being at peace with who the Lord has created us to be? Or are we like Adam and Eve, tempted toward dissatisfaction with who we are and consistently reaching for something that is beyond our reach and more than we can handle? Are we joyfully satisfied with the Lord? Ready to burst into celebration at a moment's notice, whether we are at home with our families or gathered together in this place? Or even if we are somewhere else, do we share our joy with others? Do we share it with those outside these walls? Do we share it with the people who check us out at the grocery store? Bring in our groceries. Are we sharing our joy with them? Do we share it with our wait staff at the restaurants? And I know some church people that have a really bad reputation at restaurants. Do we share it with our classmates? Our employers? Our employees? Do we even share it with those who make our lives difficult? Are we joyfully defiant 
are we miserably compliant? According to the psalmist here, our joy is to match the joy of creation, which praises the Lord just by being what it is created to be. It all comes full circle as the final verse where the author comes back to the deliverance of the Lord. Look at verse 9 again. He says, Before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth, and He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. In the beginning of the psalm, when the author wrote of God's deliverance, it was about the marvelous things the Lord had done in the past. Here in verse 9, Wrap up the song by talking about God's judgment that is yet to come for them. We've talked about this before, how a lot of Christians would make this to mean some sort of sinners in the hands of an angry God scenario. That's not how God's judgment unfolded in terms of salvation, is it? On the contrary, it had everything to do with Jesus on the cross, crucified by our own hands. God's judgment, His conclusion based on our situation, was that we would be sinners in the hands of a loving God. A God willing to make the ultimate sacrifice. A God who would lay down His own life for the sake of those He created. Which means that this promise was about Jesus, in whom God gave Himself to save us. To show us what true love really looked like. To reveal the most basic reality in the universe, which we find in John 3, 16 and 17. Most of us know this by heart, right? At least the first part. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, <clears throat> but have eternal life. <coughs> Pardon me. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The most amazing thing about this is what Paul said happened as a result. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, he wrote that for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. That's Jesus. So that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. That we might become the righteousness of God. Are we listening to the scriptures? That we might become the righteousness of God. Because we have the ability to look back through the lens of Jesus at this passage and understand it based on who he was and what he did. We see that the righteousness. He judges the world by is Jesus. It is Him. So <clears throat> Jesus laid down His life sacrificially to show us love so that we might become that righteousness. So that we might live differently. So that we might experience the light and life and love of our Creator. So that in spite of all the darkness around us, we might experience joy share that joy. Because we have a Savior and King who has brought our salvation about and delivered us from our enslavement to sin and death. And all we need to do is trust in Him and what He has done. 
so that we might joyfully sing, O oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, still be our guard while troubles last, and our eternal home. Will you pray with me?